Alright, so welcome back to episode two of the Save Barnegat Bay podcast. Um, as always, I'm Chris Landy, and I'm here with Britta Wenzel, the executive director of Save Barnegat Bay, and Dr. Paul Bologna, the, the director of marine biology and coastal sciences at Montclair State University. Good afternoon. Hi, Chris. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, jellyfish in Barnegat Bay, which has been, I know, a big problem on the mind of a lot of homeowners and people visiting this summer and even a couple summers past and probably for the next few summers to uh, to come. So, I mean, just to, to start off, uh, so what what are jelly? <laughs> I know it's a simple question, but well, start there. Um, in fact, uh, we have two different sort of groups of what are considered jellies in Barnegat Bay in the coastal areas. We have true jellyfish like the sea nettles, and then we also have comb jellies. And, and comb jellies are organisms that are called tenophores. They're um, very soft, they're jelly-like, they're clear, but they also appear iridescent. Um, they also don't have stinging cells, so they're not dangerous. And we have lots of those in the bay as well. So we have sort of these two broad groups. In addition to that, we have not just sea nettles, we have lion's mane jellyfish, we have mushroom jellyfish, we have a variety of hydroids, abelia, which are also common in Barnegat Bay and in our coastal waters. So which one of these do you think are kind of the problem jellyfish? Well, there's, there's comb jellies and sea nettles are important predators in the food web. Um, they both eat things like fish eggs, fish larvae, um, crab larvae that are in the water column. And so they both have the potential of impacting sort of the, the natural food web of Barnegat Bay. Jellyfish and sea nettles in particular, because they're relatively concentrated in the bay relative to sort of the, the open water in the coastal areas, tend to have that issue as well as their stinging cells are challenging for people that swim and want to do recreation in our bay. I'm just going to say that, you know, it's like the invasion of the jellyfish, <laughs> I think, for a lot of us who've grown up on the bay. In my own childhood, we could swim in the bay every day, and I don't think I was ever stung in the Barnegat Bay in my youth. In the Chesapeake, of course, we got stung all the time, and was sort of, you know, accustomed to that after a while. But around here, I think that the biggest concern for most of our residents is you know, the stinging nettles. And is that an indicator species for something gone wrong in the bay? Well, well jellyfish are sort of a, a, a bellwether for many coastal areas. Because they're capable of surviving under low oxygen concentrations, they kind of win by default. They're out there. So when other species are slowed down or die under low oxygen concentrations, sea nettles don't have that problem. So they have an opportunity to continue to feed. And in fact, under low oxygen, the fish can't swim away nearly as quickly because right. they're kind of stressed out. So they're actually much more capable of feeding on them um, under these low oxygen situations. So when you look at any developed, any human populated coastal system globally, excess fertilizers, nutrients, development, all of these lead to changes in water quality, which result in sort of eutrophication, too much algae blooming in the areas, low oxygen concentrations, all of those favor jellyfish. At the same time, the critical life stage of jellyfish are the polyps, sort of these very, very small individuals that settle out, 
They settle on the hard substrate, so they used to settle on things like oysters and, and rocks, etc. But now, when we create docks, bulkheads, structures where there used to be salt marshes in our coastal areas, now they've got a whole new place for them to settle and survive and reproduce. And when you've got more polyps, ultimately they're going to make more jellyfish that are in our coastal waters. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I would love to hear about some of your new research that you have going on. So um, this is a, our year two of funding from the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection asking these questions. Um, like you, Britta, uh, I've been on the Bay for 15 years working, and 10, 15 years ago, oh, yeah, I saw seeing that every once in a while. Then about five years, geez, I've seen occasionally a few more of them until we get to today where boy, there sure seems like there's a lot of them. Um, the problem of some of our issues about that sort of observational data is that we can't definitively say that they weren't other places right? until you start to collect information. Mm -hmm. So now that we're sort of doing baywide surveys to actually know how many jellyfish are out there, this is the first sort of complete comprehensive data set that we're starting to generate. And so typically we see them much more abundant in the northern part of the bay, sort of between Barnegat Inlet and um, Matitaconk, um, and really concentrated sort of Tom's River to Matitaconk region in the northern part. Then they seem to be relatively absent from southern parts of the bay. Over the years, I think what we're going to see is we're going to probably see changes as the ecosystem changes, as you know, Barnegat Bay, unless we start to get aspects of cleaner water within the system, um, reducing nutrients and loadings into there, jellyfish are probably going to continue to rise in the future. So, so what do you think just the average citizen listening in could do just to take steps to help curb the numbers a little bit? Well, there's, there's two important things. One is increasing water quality. So using the right type of fertilizer or no fertilizer. Um, you know, sort of gardenscaping, making sure that you're minimizing stormwater input into the bay. Those are good things. That helps water quality in the bay itself. For the jellyfish themselves, because this polyp is the critical stage, what we're not sure about is could you scrub your bulkhead or your dock to sort of you know, release them and kind of scratch them? Um, can and should you pull floating docks at the end of the season so that the remaining polyps and the resting spores, these podocysts that are on the bottom, basically kill them through freezing. And so that's ultimately what's generating the future years is what's growing on there and what survives the winter. The adults die in the fall. They're gone. And it's this polyp stage that's going to make next year's. And so are there things like that that have the potential? That's one of the questions that we're starting to ask. So I think that's some great information. I know a lot of the questions that we uh, Get. received yeah after uh, Sandy from the media and from the public was did Sandy impact in any way or the influx of salt water in the bay uh, the the potential populations for this summer I know that's a really broad question to ask and then you know in our initial research we were looking in the Chesapeake after rain events where there was this huge influx of fresh water did that impact the populations so I guess you know I still curious to hear what you have to say about that. Well, th this is you know, part of the questions of complete unknown. Um, because Sandy hit in the fall, basically what adults were around were already on their way to, to dying off. 
many of the resting spores were already ready. These pot assists were already ready on the dock, so Sandy really wouldn't have had any impact on them. Might have killed off some of the polyps, but the polyps really were going to be declining anyhow because of the cold weather. So the potential for Sandy being a large impact, probably minimal with the exception of uprooting docks and other building materials and throwing right, them onto right. marshes and sort of um, displacing them outside. You might have lost some habitat, but at the same time, those same structures are still buried. Right. You know, lawn chairs, deck chairs, things like that are still in the bay. There's still a lot of debris left to be out there. So we don't really know what the true impacts of Sandy might be on jellyfish. Certainly we see them this year, so it's not as if she wiped them all out. Um, We're seeing them again. Um, So I think we're a little bit, you know, unknown at this point. And maybe at the end of the season we'll be able to compare sort of what the season looked like pre-Sandy and then post-Sandy and make some analysis or, or understanding of what went on. I think that's probably true with most ecological systems. It's going to be really hard to gauge the impacts of Sandy until we have a little bit of distance and can look back and really measure things. It's still really soon to be making judgments. It is, but Mm -hmm. it's still the number one question. Right, right. (laughs) Now, you're also seeing more sea nettles in the southern part of the bay? Um, We've had lots of reports from people living in um, lagoon communities in particular, in uh, in the Beach Haven West area, in Barnegat Beach area, in Harvey Cedars occasionally, where they are, are starting to see some jellies. Uh, one of the challenges, people call us all the time and say, oh, I've got jellyfish, and really what they have are comb jellies. Oh. They don't really have sea nettles, but they look alike. That's why I say is that we often get this confusion right. if the public doesn't actually know the difference between these two groups. And they always talk about, oh, they're swarming, there's lots in them. And you take a look, and mostly they've got large numbers of comb jellies, which are, are very common in the bay, but they're very different critters. So sometimes we get reports and they're, they're not necessarily stinging sea nettle. They're one of these other jellies uh, in there. Interesting. But, you know. Is there, we, is there an easy way to tell them apart? Oh, sure. They don't look anything alike. But, you know, what you got to recognize is that, uh, especially if people are, are, are tourists or um, if they're even, if, if it's a vacation home that they go to on a regular basis, they don't necessarily know the difference. But they also know that jellyfish are around and that they should be looking and so this is where sort of novice people are looking at the water now to make sure that there's no jellyfish in there to go swimming so they don't send their kids into the water mm-hmm. and so they're seeing these things and they're not quite sure exactly what they are so that is a common thing but we definitely have seen them in lagoons elsewhere the question is is this just sort of like the tip of the iceberg in some of these other areas of the bay mm-hmm. In addition to that, we've got reports, and we're pretty um, sure that we've got uh, populations in Navasink Shrewsbury now. Oh, really? Yes. So we've actually had uh, had uh, my colleague Jack Gainer and I and a, and a graduate student. They've collected up there, and we've identified them through their DNA that they are, in fact, the, the sea nettle Chrysara. Um, so we think that there are populations outside of Barnegat Bay that are just starting to emerge as well. Wow. I know I was tabling at the Jazz and Blues Festival handing out settling plates, and uh, some residents along the Manasquan River were asking me if they could put plates out. And I said, well, we're really focused on the Barnegat Bay, but it sounds like maybe in the Manasquan too. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've had reports that even in, um, in Great Bay, down in um, uh, Little Lake Harbor, sort of in that region, that mm-hmm. they've seen them in those regions. Um, again, this is 
anecdotal, so it right. could be a lion's mane, it could be comb jellies, right. but they've said that they've seen jellyfish down that way as well. Wow. Uh, we've got a couple questions from uh, Willie DeCamp that he emailed in because he couldn't be here today. Um, and one, the one that strikes me as kind of relevant. Um, and maybe you can answer it, is does the uneven distribution of sea nettles in the bay offer hints as to how we might get rid of them? Hints to get rid of them. Um, yeah, if we converted all the unnatural shoreline back to salt marshes so that there was no place for the polyps, <laughs> if we could return the bay in that Natural. respect, that in fact would probably solve a large portion of the problem. Right. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that that's real. Uh, or even potentially possible in this day and age. Um, I, I'm in favor of things like you know the buyouts of people's homes um, post storms like this because the reality is you know Sandy was a very unusual event, but with a changing climate, we're going to probably see more of these quote unquote hundred year storms on a more frequent basis, right. and that our houses are going to need to be elevated. We're going to have to deal with these kinds of things. Um, the same way as that the inlet that was cut in the Manilokan area, that's what hurricanes do. That's what Mother Nature and Barrier Islands are supposed to do. They're supposed to breach and cut and move and shift. They're not supposed to be static, um, walled off from interacting with the coastal mm -hmm. oceans. And so uh, the, the reality is about, you know, the northern part of the bay has the greatest development you know, we've got the Forsyth Refuge in sort of the middle and the southern part of the bay, so there's still a lot of protected shoreline and, and protected habitat. So that may be one of the driving factors of the disparity between the numbers in the northern part and the southern part. But barring converting all that development to salt marshes, it's going to be a little bit challenging. Mm -hmm. no, I think that's the bottom line. We've changed the topography and the natural landscape so much that uh, it's hard to think of a reversal other than a natural event like Sandy, <laughs> uh, getting people to move their homes. I mean, myself included, I live here in Lavalette. I don't know where I'm going, but <laughs> probably if there's another storm, lots of folks will put out for sale signs, you know, <laughs> and that'll, uh, the sea level rise and climate change will make folks make different decisions. But aside from that, um, I think the other great challenge is there's so many more people living in Ocean County now in my lifetime, I'm 42, uh, we went from less than 200,000 to 600,000. And so I called a lot of new folks who had no idea that the ocean could land in their living room when they live in Bricktown. Um, they don't know what a watershed is. So we have a lot of fundamental education to do, and folks need to understand what it is they can do on their own properties to make changes, you know, as Dr. Bologna referred to. Um, a lot of all these other questions I think we might have covered. He wanted to know um, if just one aspect of the bay's ecology could be turned around in hopes of reducing seasonal population. What, that, what, what might that be? I think we covered that a little bit. But. Well, I, I, I think that um, the, the largest factor would be dissolved oxygen. And dissolved oxygen is a relatively complex problem affiliated with flushing rates of the bay, affiliated with nutrients and eutrophication, um, as well as sort of cycling and death and sort of dead-end areas where organic matter just sort of sits and decomposes. But because sea nettles and jellyfish are really tolerant of low oxygen, 
if there were ways to improve oxygen through reduction of nutrients, uh, increasing flow rates of all of these flushing kinds of issues, then there would be a higher probability that other things like barnacles could crowd out the, the, the polyps from right. said uh, structures and other kinds of organisms could compete with them. But when they can't survive under low oxygen, then the polyps have nobody to fight it against. And so they can just asexually bud and cover large areas at very high density. Some of our highest densities from some of our plates over the years have been something like 6,000 individuals per square meter of wow. bottom. So somebody's typical, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot dock, there could be 30, 40, 50, 60,000 polyps laying down there ready to sort of bud off new jellyfish um, five to 10 at a time. So are you seeing a lot of barnacles out there? Or? Sure, we see barnacles all the time. And if you look at, if, you're, if, you, if you go along a lot of the pilings, you're going to see sort of barnacles in that upper area. Um, so but they don't really of, grow on the PVC, right? Or? No, they do. They'll they grow do. anywhere. They do. You see them on the PVC, oh, yeah, yeah. too? But because if you've got low oxygen, they don't do real well, right. they kind of will settle, but they'll die. And that mm. leaves all the space open for uh, the jellyfish to kind of survive in those conditions. That'd be a great natural competitor. I mean, mm -hmm. take up all that space. Well, the other is we do. Um, the, the other might be a biological control, which are sea slugs, nudibranchs. Mm -hmm. Nudibranchs are fascinating little critters um, because one of the things that they can do is after they feed on a sea anemone or a hydroid or um, a jellyfish polyp, they actually take the stinging cells that are inside them. They don't go off inside their digestive tract. They sequester them, they bring them, and they put them onto their backs themselves in sort of like little finger-like appendages. So they actually now are utilizing sort of the stinging cells of these organisms as their own protection. And so now they're covered outside there. And we do have several different species of uh, nudibranchs that are out there. We really don't know whether or not they feed on these kinds of polyps. So this is one of the things that we hope to, to do sort of in a laboratory setting to see are there natural potential predators that are out there? They're not really abundant, but you know, there's always the possibility of culturing them and in the spring releasing them on people's docks and piers and in a desperate hope to eat as many polyps as they can to, to feed along those areas. Very interesting. I learned something new today. <laughs> so what do you think the, um, the next step is in researching you know, where they're coming from, what to do? Well, uh, I guess I would say where they're coming from, well, they're coming from internal bays. They're, they're here. Um, one of our large areas of research right now is trying to understand what are they eating. Because whenever you have basically a top predator in the system increasing in numbers, they have the potential of sort of restructuring what the food web looks like. And jellyfish food webs in general um, are very different than what we consider sort of our, our typical zooplankton community leading to silver sides and small fish mm -hmm. that are fed on by bluefish, etc. Because jellyfish are going to compete with the larval fish in particular mm -hmm. that are also utilizing the bay for these same copepods and these other small organisms. Um, but they also feed on those same larval fish and as they get larger they feed on larger fish. So if you're a, a a winter flounder larva swimming in the water column, um, you know, you might encounter these and, and lose that race before we ever get a chance to put them uh, on our hooks. Um, at the same point, if you are a striped bass coming into, look for mummachogs or look for, you know, small bait fish in the bay, 
and essentially they've been fed on by the jellyfish at the egg and larval stage before you ever get to them, then there's no forage stock for larger predators. And it, it may be five, ten years before we actually understand what their true impact may be from a food web because that would require sort of like failures of larger fish and larger fish stocks that may in fact be utilizing the bay as an important life history stage, either as feeding or as egg and larval stage, which lots of the fish do, that we utilize as uh, recreational and commercially harvested. I think a lot of folks don't necessarily realize that unless they're an avid fisher, that you know, there's a big biomass of fish that comes up and down the coast of Jersey, and they often detour into the Barnegat Bay to have their young or go through a certain part of their life cycle. So in addition to being harmful to us, just swimming and recreating in the bay, the, the environmental impacts are you know, not even understood mm -hmm. quite yet. It's scary a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? A little bit. We all want to fish and crab and know that they're out there and mm -hmm. replacing themselves. And, so. and, and you know, the, inevitably we only address that problem when we can no longer catch until crabs crisis. and fish. That's right. Like, well, where did they all go? Well, we've been telling you that there's been this problem for about eight or ten years, and now right. that you don't have any, um, it's very similar with uh, the seagrasses in the bay. Right. Um, a lot of people in the summer, they're upset because it's floating and it gets in their props, and they got to right. shut down because their engines overheat. And just, well, do you like crabs? Well, of course. Well, where do you think all the baby crabs are hanging out? They're utilizing <laughs> right. it's Essential fish habitat um, is how it's referred to by the federal government. It's critically important habitat for the bay. And Barnegat Bay holds something like 80 to 90 percent of all seagrass in the state. And I think the only eelgrass in the state of New Jersey is in Barnegat Bay. That's a pretty that's important resource yeah. that's out there that, you know, we just take for granted or most people don't even understand or it's an annoyance rather than something that's critically important. Right definitely something that needs to be addressed now while it's still addressable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. But, you know, seagrasses fall prey to the same issues that favor jellyfish with too much nutrients leading to phytoplankton blooms that shade them or um, macroalgal blooms like sea lettuce, which then smothers them and kills them. <laughs> you know, all of those things are not good for the seagrasses either. And so, you know, those would be very positive steps that we could take if we can improve the nutrient loading in Barnegat Bay. So do you still need help in terms of putting out settling plates? Or? Um, we always like to have as many volunteers as possible. Sometimes I think we're in the 40, 50 range right now. Um, one of the things we're looking at is kind of um, hot spots in the bay mm -hmm. of where we might see sort of like the settlers. And that helps us focus, you know, future research and future questions because it may be sort of a, a circulation mm -hmm. pattern that consistently, or a wind pattern. Are there things that environmentally are happening that kind of create these areas the same way that if we see that those may be areas that you want to target with education and outreach on how can you minimize your population what kind of you know make sure that you in particular get your floating docks out of the water every right. year because there's lots and lots of them here um, so we, we do look forward to that and we've got you know lots of opportunities with Save Barnegat Bay to have little settling plates. They're extremely yeah, small. I was going to say, um, we've got a little bit of time left. Do you want to talk a little bit about the settling plates and how people can get involved with that project? Sure. I mean, Save Barnegat Bay has had, over our 44-year history, tremendous success in working with our neighbors and our neighborhoods, communities who really respond. So, for example, this morning, a uh, husband and wife came in 
from a homeowners association. They have multiple lagoons. They're having their meeting this week, and they picked up 10 settling plates. They're going to take a sign-up sheet to their meeting and have their neighbors and friends sign up to hang the settling plates. And then they'll bring it back to me you know, at the end of the week, and we'll let Dr. Polonia know the sites. Uh, but that's extremely helpful, right, because now we'll have information, good information, in their homeowners association, which they've been experiencing problems at the children's swimming beach and other places. And maybe with the collected data that we end up with, we can help to develop solutions for their neighborhood, just as you suggested. So I think there, there is a real strategic way that people can help, and that's simply by either giving us a call or stopping by or a message on Facebook or email and pick up this string. I don't know if you want to describe it. Um, it's, a, it, it's a string with four pieces of flat plastic, <laughs> about two inches on a side. Um, very, very small. It's just, it's, it's kind of almost a, a presence absence. Do we find them? Where are they located? How many of them are out there? Um, and that helps us, again, identify areas to sort of look closer. And when you've got people who are on the bay all the time, those are the eyes and ears that we don't necessarily have as somebody who's on the bay frequently, but I'm not on every square inch of the bay. You and could so, never be. <laughs> no, you, you just can't. And so that really helps us when we've got sort of citizen scientists who, looking at that powers of observation, if you look at the classic scientific method, step one, observation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's out there? Where is it? Um, and so before you can formulate your hypotheses and do all the rest of that, you've got to see. You've got to look at it. And so the greater numbers of people we have out there looking and helping us really helps us with that observational pattern question. Right. And it's an, basically an inexpensive methodology. And if you have a dock or a bulkhead and you can help us out and come pick up this string, it's free. There's no you know, hook involved other than you, you drop it off your dock or bulkhead and uh, at one point, we'll either email you or give you a ring and say, on this day, we're going to be collecting them. Uh, and then we'll be able to have the professionals do an analysis and mm -hmm. determine what's actually off of your docker bulkhead. So it's a really, really simple way to get involved. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And be a part of the solution, hopefully. Right. Yeah. right. Um, all right. So we're uh, running a little low on time. Um, so um, thanks a lot for, for coming in. Great. It was my pleasure. <laughs> I know it seems like it's a uh, fancy technology, but it's just a recorded interview. And uh, yes. <laughs> episode two, we haven't been doing this. That's right. Now, long. now I actually have to, you know, get an iPod or get my son to put it on his iPod or iPhone so that I can. You can listen, listen to, to it right on your laptop. Yeah. I didn't know that. We're so going to put it on now, our Facebook, and then you can just we'll click on and uh, listen to it. We're still working on getting our our hosting together so that we can push it through iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, but they're definitely they'll definitely go up on YouTube, mm -hmm. so you can uh, check that out. And uh, yeah, it should be all good. Well, thank you very much. Already, uh, my pleasure. To hopefully, be here. we'll tune in with you again sometime. <laughs> and hopefully, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a bunch of settling plates and some microscopes, and folks can come and see what's growing under their dock or what's settling in those areas. That sounds exciting. All right, well, see you, Barney Get Bay Podcast signing out. We'll see you next week.